Good morning, crowd, family, and happy, happy Sunday to all of you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Again, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 is today's text. We're now in part 3 of our series, Doctrine and Devotion. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And, and Paul moves on to preach in other cities, but because it was so much work still to be done in Crete, he left Titus behind. And what Paul did, he commissioned Titus to do two things. First of all, you might remember this. First of all, he was commissioned to straighten out or set in order what was left unfinished. And so there were crooked things that had to be set straight or set in order among the congregations of Crete. Second of all, Titus was commissioned to appoint elders in every town. And what Paul does is give Titus a list of characteristic qualities of a godly leader. Now, this list is more of a character description and less of a job description. And you see, Paul is more concerned about the man's character than he is about what the man can do. So, Titus was to look for men of the kind of character Paul describes in the following verses and to appoint them as elders in the congregations. Then in verse 9, Paul says, he, speaking uh, to God, to the godly leader, uh, he must hold firmly, or in other words, cling to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine, sound doctrine, and refute those who oppose it. So elders must be declarers and defenders of God's word as they lead and feed God's people. This now brings us to today's text. And the title of my message is Beware of False Teachers. Say that, Beware of False Teachers. I want to share three points uh, with you from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one is this. Speaking of the false teachers, their detailed description. Write that down. Their detailed description. Say that, their detailed description. I want us to look at verse 10. Verse 10. Paul writes four. Four. And I want to stop there. When a verse starts with the word for, say for, it all, it's always a reason, always a reason for something that has just been said before it. In the last verse, because we got to go back to verse 9, the last verse, verse 9, the last thing Paul told Titus was to do what? Huh? Was to do what? Was to hold firmly, cling to, right? Hold on to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And what he's telling Titus is, Titus, you're going to be out there. And Titus, whatever you do, hold firmly, cling to, hang on to the Word of God. Why? Why? Well, the reason is in the next part of this verse, and this is why it's so important for Titus to appoint godly leaders. And here's the reason. Let's read on. For there are many rebellious people. Did you get that? There are many rebellious people. This word refers to those who were literally uncontrolled and, and unwilling to submit to authority. It's also translated as unruly or insubordinate. Uh, this is the same word that's used to describe rebellious children back in verse 6. Now listen, a rebellious spirit is one of the telltale signs of a false teacher. It's a rebellious spirit of independence, listen now, of independence from the truth of God's word as the final authority. Warren Wiersbe said this, Beware of teachers who will not put themselves under authority. 
And you know, friends, there are some, some people who hate authority in the church. And they won't submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. They won't submit to the authority of the Word of God or to the authority of church leadership. And the leaders of the church are to keep a lookout for people like that. Then Paul goes on to say mere talkers might also be rendered empty talkers. The New Living Translation renders it like this. They engage in useless talk. J. Vernon McGee refers to them as empty chatters. How many of you know people like that? Huh? How many of you know people like that? They can talk for hours and hours and hours, hours and hours, but never say anything. And they can talk all the way around an issue, but never get to the main point. And so you never really get anything from them, right? It's fruitless talk. And they talk a lot, but they never say anything. In other words, they're, they're all show, no go, just blowing hot air, a lot of hot air. And you see, this is my point, these false teachers were full of words, full of hot air, but empty in their hearts. Speaking of false teachers in 1 Timothy 1.6, 1 Timothy 1.6, Paul writes, Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. Then he goes on to say, and deceivers. Say that, and deceivers. Literally means mind, mind deceivers. And Paul warned Timothy of something similar in 1 Timothy 4.1. Write that down, 1 Timothy 4.1. And he writes this, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. There it is. And things taught by demons. Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. Romans 16, 17 through 18. Paul writes this, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, listen to what he says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Hmm. They're deceivers. Then he says, especially those of the circumcision group. You get that? Especially those of the circumcision group. This refers to those who were insisting that people follow all the Old Testament, listen, rules, rules, and regulations. And what they were doing was they were giving Moses primacy over Jesus, and they were determined to propagate their teaching as in Acts 15.1. Acts 15.1, write that down, says, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, what they were telling people was this, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. And what they did, they wanted to mix a little of Old Testament law into grace. And they tried to teach them that grace was not enough, but that they needed to take upon themselves all the rules and regulations about foods and washings. You know what that is? That's what we call legalism. Say legalism. And Paul's ministry was plagued by these legalists, and he dealt with them severely. In fact, in Acts 15, verse 2, Acts 15, verse 2, it says, it says this, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And Paul recognizes the danger here because legal, listen, listen, legalism sucks the life out of grace. And this is why Paul was so adamant that these false teachers not be allowed to spread their venom, their poison. What they were doing, they were advocating that 
The only way someone could be saved was by keeping the Old Testament law. That salvation doesn't come about by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but rather that people can save themselves by keeping the law. Now I want to say this. Paul, listen, Paul had no tolerance for a works-based theology. Why? Because it essentially gutted the doctrine of God's grace. Now I want you to listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says this. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly, clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Paul's saying, hey, you're no longer, because of grace, because of the new covenant, you're not bound to the Old Testament laws. You are now saved by grace. Someone say amen to that. Let's move on. Verse 11a, he writes, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. So the idea is to literally close the mouth by means of a muzzle and was used in the noun form to describe a stop in a water pipe. A stop in a water pipe. Now, now please listen to me, okay? This is not implying that they are to be silenced by violence or persecution. And I want you to follow me here. There are at least two responsibilities that Titus and the elders have here in silencing the false teachers. And the first one was this, that the false teachers must be refused the opportunity to spread their teachings in the churches. Okay, so these leaders would go and say, hey, you can't teach that here, get out. Second, they are to silence them by a logical refutation, excuse me, refutation of their views. In other words, to show them from the Word of God that they're wrong, that what they're teaching is wrong. Okay, this takes us back to verse 9. Remember what it says in verse 9? He's speaking of the godly leader, the, the elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Listen to what he says. And refute, say refute, those who oppose it. Now listen, we're not talking here about someone who has, about someone who have, though, about those who have, excuse me, honest questions about God in the Bible, nor about someone who has a belief that may be immature for the lack of knowledge. We're talking here about someone who sets themselves up as some authority and tries to sway a person to believing something that's not biblically sound. Now listen, it is the job of the leaders of the church to spot that person and to silence them. To silence them. So why must they be silenced? Well, verse 11b. Verse 11b. Because they are ruining, or in other words, disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Now, I want to stop there. These were house churches. They met in homes. And this shows why it was so important for Titus to appoint elders to lead these house churches. Now think about it, friends, okay? If these congregations were left to themselves... Chaos and error would dominate them. So this is why 
Titus appointed elders to lead these house churches. Now let's read on. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. So because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that are ought not, things ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So Paul's main idea here was of dishonest financial gain. Financial gain. I got to say something right now, and you may not agree with it, and that is when a pastor, evangelist, or minister starts to talk about money, you better scrutinize their ministry. And I say this because it's not his responsibility to fleece the flock, but to feed it, not to milk it, but to minister to it. Now, I'm not saying that a pastor shouldn't talk about money. In fact, pastors have a responsibility to teach the congregation about financial stewardship. But here, excuse me, but there, and we know this, but there are a lot of preachers, a lot of preachers out there fleecing and milking their congregation for the sake of dishonest gain and ministering to their own comfort. Right? And you can see a lot of them on TV. Listen, I want to say this. One of the, the crucial character qualities and mark of identification of a true shepherd of God's people is purity of motives. Say that, purity of motives. Not only regarding money, but for all forms of self-centered agendas, position, power, praise, and possessions. Got it? So, Paul points out their detailed description. Number two is this, their depraved culture. Their depraved culture. Write that down, their depraved culture. Look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12, Paul writes, Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, sometimes when you really want to tell people what you want to tell them, the best thing to do is to quote one of their own, right? Well, that's exactly what Paul does here. He has read enough, listen now, of the poets and philosophers of the day that he picks out a statement from one of their poets. Uh, Epimenides, he's a 6th century B.C. poet and philosopher who lived about 600 years before Christ. So this poet was well respected by the people of Crete. And Paul, what he does, he pulls a statement of his writings and uses it here in the text to describe these people on the island of Crete. And this poet or philosopher says, Cretans are always liars Evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This, this poet is using hyperbole here. He's, in other words, he's excuse me, exaggerating a bit here. And, and his point is that the Cretans lie a lot. Okay? It's not that they always lie, because if they always lie, that means that this poet is a liar himself, because he was a Cretan himself, but that they lie a lot. Well, this obviously indicates that there, there's a character problem here. So follow me here. They're liars, right? That's what it is. They are liars. In other words, they're dishonest. So if they're dishonest, you can't what? You can't trust them. Then he says they are evil brutes or beasts. In other words, some, someone could say it like this. They are antagonistic animals. And, and these, listen, these, these false teachers were unruly people who, who bite and won't let go. They bite and won't let go. They, they behave like evil beasts with no restraints. They're, they're selfish and they're savage. Did you get that? Savage, friends. They, they have no moral compass. Then he says they are lazy gluttons. Cretans, listen now, were known to hate work. They were lazy, to hate work and to love food. They didn't, they didn't want to work for a living, 
Uh, they just wanted to enjoy a good party life. Now, if you put those three characteristics in layman's terminology, we would say that they are untruthful, excuse me, untruthful, excuse me, untruthful, selfish, and pleasure-loving. Okay, they would rather just lay around and play love and play and love pleasure rather than be involved in hard work in order to meet their own needs. Got it? Let's move on to verse 13a. Paul says this testimony is true. This testimony is true. That they're liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul says, I agree with their, with their poet. I agree with their philosopher. Okay? He's right. Those people on the island of Crete are just like that. So Paul not only tells Titus what these people are like, but he also empowers him and the church leaders to do something about it by taking a course of action. Titus, church leaders, this is your approach. This is it, verse 13b. Therefore, therefore, because this testimony is true of them, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Did you get that? I want to stop there. Paul gave Timothy similar instructions in 2 Timothy 4.2, 2 Timothy 4.2, where he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, here's the word, rebuke. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The picture is to knock down a door with an axe when a house is on fire so as to save the occupants. That's the picture there when you speak of rebuke. You see, this is why Titus, and this is why the church leaders, is to make sure that they rebuke sharply, these false teachers sharply, not softly. Now, I want to say this, friends. We live in a culture that has lost all moral bearing and refuses to rebuke any behavior or activity, no matter how sinful or harmful it is. And not to mention that there are pastors, many pastors, who refuse to rebuke any sinful behavior. In fact, many church Goers are unaware of what the Bible teaches about sin and accountability to God because few pastors are willing to preach passages or messages that address sin. Now I want to say this. I realize to rebuke someone is not easy. It's never, in fact, it's never easy. But we must be willing, listen now, we must be willing to boldly stand for the truth while confronting sin. If you agree with me, say amen. Now, I also want to make sure that we understand that the goal of a rebuke should always be for restoration. For restoration. It's for restoring, not for destroying. Got it? It's for restoring, not for destroying. Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 tells us to restore someone. Let's read on. So that they will be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply, Paul says, so that they will be sound in the faith. So how, how are we going to do that? Well, by presenting the truth of God's word. So Titus was to offer a loving yet firm rebuke, being willing to preach the truth of God's word. And you see, friends, when you present the truth of God's word, it's, it's going to rebuke, it's going to exhort, it's going to rearrange priorities, it's going to shape them up so that they become sound in the faith. You see, a rebuke should lead to realignment 
and repentance. I want you to follow me here. Proclaiming the truth of God's word should bring conviction and result in transformed lives. Let's go back to the text. Paul writes, sound, say sound, sound in faith. The word sound is a word we get hygiene from and is used metaphorically to describe someone who is spiritually healthy. I love that. That being said, and got to get this, a spiritual rebuke should have as its motivation a return to spiritual health. So there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Some people need a sharp rebuke to return to spiritual health. I'm going to say it again. Some people need a sharp rebuke to return to spiritual health. That's the lesson. You know, some people respond with just a gentle hint that something's wrong. But man, there are others, right? Others, hey, they don't respond until you hit them with a two-by-four over their head, okay? It takes a couple of whacks, right? But that's the lesson. Some people need a sharp rebuke to return to spiritual health. Let's move on to verse 14a. And we'll pay no attention to Jewish myths. Jewish myths were legends or fictitious tales added to Old Testament history. And, and these, these, these false teachers, uh, they, they were not carefully studying and expounding God's word. They, what they were doing, they were teaching stuff invented by men. In fact, Paul warned Timothy about the same thing in 2 Timothy 4.4, 2 Timothy 4.4, where he writes, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. Verse 14b, let's move on. Or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Let's read this together, okay? So that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject. This refers to the various legalistic and ascetic rules that people try to add to the gospel of grace and our liberty in Christ. Friends, these commands, listen now, were Jewish Gnostic ritual observances that the false teachers sought to make binding on Christians. They were Old Testament regulations that were no longer valid for the Christian, like such as circumcision, observing the Passover, or dietary laws. Let's go back to the text. Of those who reject the truth. Of those who reject the truth. These false teachers are rejecting the truth of grace and Christian liberty. They were seeking to force rules and regulations on others for either salvation or sanctification or for both. So I want you to follow me here. Paul points out their detailed description, their depraved culture, and in point number three, point number three is their defiled conscience. Write that down, their defiled conscience. Their defiled conscience. Look at verse 15a with me, verse 15a. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 15a. To the pure, all things are pure. Paul is saying that true purity lies not in observing external rights and regulations like the false teachers and like the legalistic Jews but in the inner purity of a heart that has been cleansed and regenerated through, listen now, personal trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ as a finished and complete provision of our salvation. And, and I want to tell you, Paul knew that there were solid biblical believers in Crete, those who have Christ 
in control of their lives and also in control of their minds. And it's evident that those who are pure would reveal purity in their character and behavior in every aspect of their lives. So, Paul says to the pure, all things are pure. So right there, he's speaking to those who have Christ in their lives. Now he moves on to the defiled, to those who have a defiled conscience, verse 15b. But to those who are corrupt, corrupted, and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Consciences, listen, conscience, say that conscience, is that inner internal, excuse me, that internal judge that either accuses or excuses our actions. Now listen, in contrast to those who were pure, these false teachers and those who follow them were corrupt. And friends, you see, for those defiled in sin, refusing to believe the gospel, nothing, listen, to them, nothing was pure. And every area of their life was directed by their sinful desires and the lust of the flesh. And friends, their defilement affected their mind and their conscience, their words, listen now, and deeds revealed their heart. They were bound by sin that, listen now, revealed depravity in every single area of their life. Now, there's a lesson. What's the lesson? Here's a lesson. Have a clean mind. Have a clean conscience. Have a clean mind, okay? Now listen. Write that down. Have a clean mind. Listen. Whatever you choose to fill your mind with will affect the way you think, the way you act, the way you live. Now follow me here. If you immerse yourself in the things of the world, the world system, in the things of the world, you will begin to think, act, and live like the world. You will display worldly behavior. On the other hand, if you immerse yourself in the Word, in the Word of God, friends, you will think, act, and live like the Word. You'll display Godly behavior. Friends, God, listen, God's desire is that our minds be clean. Therefore, we need to immerse ourselves in his word. Write this down, Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Matthew 5, 8, Matthew 5, 8, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is speaking not just of pure motives, but also of pure holy deeds. Thomas Watson said this. It's pretty sobering. You can say, I'm a very religious person and want to please God, but if your deeds are not according to his word, and they do not reveal a real purity, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Have a clean mind. Verse 16a, they claim to know God, but but by their actions they deny Him. I'm going to read that again. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. Follow me. Their profession was all in order, right? They claim to know God, but in works, in other words, in their practice, they deny God. 1 John 2, 4. 1 John 2, 4. Write that down. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Ooh. Isaiah 29, 13. 
Isaiah 29, 13. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Hey, we can't just go by what a person says. We have to also look at how they live. Now listen, when it comes to looking for examples of people and leaders in the church, you can't just listen to what they say. You also have to look at how they live. Here's a lesson. Lesson is this. Does your talk match your walk? Does your talk match your walk? Carl Rahner said this. The number one cause of atheism is Christians. Those who proclaim God with their mouths and deny Him with their lifestyles are what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Oh. Now, if you're saved, say amen. If you're saved, say amen. Listen, a changed life leads to a changed character that leads to change conduct. Proper belief must express itself in proper behavior. And what Paul is saying here in the text is that these false teachers do what they do. Why? Because of what's in their inner nature. That even though they speak spiritual language, they're not truly saved. In fact, Paul warned Timothy very seriously in two passages, one in 1 Timothy and the other in 2 Timothy, about people in the last days living in the following fashion. And in 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, writes this, The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. And then in his last letter that he wrote, just before he concluded his letter uh, to Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yeah? Having a form of godliness. That's what he says. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Then he says this, have nothing to do with such people. Wow. In other words, everything is external. Everything is on the surface. Everything is said with the lips, but there isn't... Listen out, there isn't a great deal of authenticity in light. Of authenticity in the light. And you know what, friends? People can tell whether you're just talking a game or whether you're really living it. Get this. Change hearts. Change culture. Say that. Change hearts. Change culture. Now, now Paul's basic premise at the beginning of this passage was false teachers and religion are not going to change that culture. In fact, the Cretans needed to be released from their bondage. They were enslaved to sinful lives, which produced a sinful culture. Listen, only Jesus, say only Jesus, can change a sinful culture. And like the Cretans, friends, listen now, the only hope we have for changed hearts, the only hope we have for a changed culture is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not religion 
or even legislation. The old heart needs to be replaced with a new heart, one that's redeemed and regenerated by Jesus. Amen? Listen, when people clearly hear the gospel and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, then their hearts are changed. And out of that changed heart comes, listen now, a changed culture of good morals and of good works. Someone please say amen. So notice that Paul, what Paul does, he points out the profession, right? And then their practice. They say they know God, but obviously through their deeds, they don't know God. And now he points out their condition. Look at verse 16b. And here, friends, verse 16b, in the last part of verse 16, Paul uses some strong words, but he, he means it. He saw right through their spiritual facade, and he says this, they are detestable. Say that, detestable. In other words, this, this, this is used to describe that which is an abomination to God. It's disgusting. It has the idea of polluted by idolatry. Then he says disobedient. These are those who don't believe. These are those, listen now, who don't believe not because of insufficient evidence, but because of proud hearts. They denied God by not living consistently in accordance with the truth of grace. Then he says, and unfit, in other words, disqualified, unfit or disqualified for doing anything good, for doing good works. The basic meaning here is rejected or not standing the test. The ancient Greek word is adokimos, adokimos, A-D-O-K-I-M-O-S, adokimos, adokimos, and was used in many different ways. And it was used to describe a, a counterfeit coin. It was used to describe a, also a cowardly soldier who failed in battle. It was also described, used to describe a, a candidate rejected for elected office or, or of metals that were rejected by refiners because of impurities or of stone rejected by builders. In other words, if a stone had a, a bad enough flaw, it was marked with a capital A for adokimos and set aside as unfit, disqualified. Listen, the true believer, in contrast, is one who is adequate, equipped, and qualified for every good work. Someone say amen. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Through our new life in Christ, and you got to get this, through our new life in Christ, we stand approved in Him and are made fit. In other words, qualified. But though qualified, listen now, but though qualified, we must remain faithful and abide steadfast in our confidence in Christ so that we are living out, say living out, of the source of his life and sufficiency. In other words, this is what I'm saying. We need to be people of godly character and people of good works and need to avoid anything that would make us disqualified. Got it? Disqualified. Now, as we come to the close here, there are, there are many, many, many takeaways uh, from this message, but I just want to focus on two. And the first takeaway is this. Know the Word of God. Know the Word of God. How do you detect error? How do you, how do you detect false doctrine? How do you do that? Well, 
know the Word of God. Know the real thing. When you know the real thing, you're able to detect which that which is not truth. So you need to read the Word, study the Word, and, and feed on it. In fact, here at Crowd Christian Fellowship, you're going to receive expository preaching, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You're going to get the whole counsel of God's Word. This is why we preach this way, so that you're equipped, ready to live life and to be able to detect error. Listen, friends, if you take the text out of the context, you're going to get conned. Know the word of God. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is this. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Going back to that lesson, does your talk match your walk? Does your talk match your walk? Does what you profess match what you practice? Remember, the false teachers claim to know God, but by their actions or deeds, they what? Denied Him. Denied Him. Does your talk match your walk? In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul gave a very serious, straight-up challenge to the people in the Corinthian church. And he says this, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Friends, have you, have you ever really examined yourself? Have you? Have you taken the time recently to take a faith test? And you see, one of the dangers, and I want you to get this, one of the dangers of going to church is that over time, you can start believing that you're a Christian simply because you go to church. And if you're thinking that way, it's a dangerous way to think. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for truth, your truth. Your word, Father, is truth. Truth that directs us, corrects us. Truth that perfects us in that it matures us and protects us from sin, from evil, from false doctrine and false teachers. And so, Father, might we daily fill and flood our lives with your truth, with your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Say amen. Before I let you go, I want to give for those of you that have not asked Jesus to come into your life, to be your personal Lord and Savior, an opportunity to do that. And if that's you, you need to admit that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that you need a substitute and accept Jesus as Savior. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's you. You want to receive Jesus today. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life to save me, 
cleanse me and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. And I will serve you and live for you from this day forth until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you said that prayer, that prayer to follow Jesus, ask me to come into your life, we would love to hear from you. In fact, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact. Email us at contact at cryout.org. Love to hear from you. Hey, listen, friends, I hope you enjoyed the word. I'm just loving this new series. I'm loving this book. Short book, but very powerful. Many lessons in it that we can learn from. But uh, I just hope that you're learning stuff, learning some great lessons from this, uh, this new series. So have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll see you next week. God bless, love you, and take care.